come to you and hopefully give you encouragement Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. New message three times a week. Okay? Open your Bibles, please. To the gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. We are at our 39th sermon in Luke's gospel. We're at chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. If you were with us last week, you remember we preached on the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like 15 or 20. We don't know the number, but it was a massive amount of people who were fed. And it was an acted-out parable. It was an object lesson telling the world and those people then and us today who Jesus truly is. And we've walked through that. What did it mean for him to do what he did? We'll touch on that in a moment. Now we have before us what we call life's most important question. This is the most important question that has ever been asked. And it was asked by Jesus. Not to just the disciples then, but to all of you today. For everyone who has ever been born, this question has been asked. And at some point in time, this question will be answered by everyone. And everyone will have the right answer, but for some it will be too late. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that day is coming. But for you who hear my voice today, if you've never answered the question, today is a day of salvation. This is a time of salvation where Jesus is inviting you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. A powerful, powerful question that we need. And and you're reminded there are many questions in life that really, uh, some are silly and some don't matter much. But this is a profound one. You've heard some of the sillier questions in, in your refrigerator. Is the light on when the door's closed? I don't know. I don't have glass in it. I can't see. I don't know. if Who's buried in Grant's tomb? At the movie theater, which armrest is yours? That's always troubling to me. So I try to get on the end and have the tank right next to me, so I get both. If a man speaks in a forest and no woman is there to hear him, is he still wrong? That's not mine. That was his. I don't know. But there's, you know, there's all sorts of silly questions in life, questions that don't matter, but there's one that your eternal destiny hangs upon. This is it. And Jesus asked it. Who do you say I am? You've got to answer it. Children, we just baptized Jackson, and he will grow up in a Christian home. All of his entire family will point him to Jesus. But none of that will matter Until he finally himself answers the question, who is Jesus Christ? He must answer it himself. It's a wonderful thing to be growing up in a Christian home. To have godly parents who love Jesus more than anything else. But this is something each person must reconcile in their own heart. Who is this man? So let's take a look. Let's take a look at Luke 9, 18 to 20, just a few verses, very briefly, and then we'll unpack them together. Hear now the word of God. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me, please. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning. Everyone here by divine appointment in their assigned seats, even if they move. You have a word to speak into each heart. I don't know where each heart is today, but you do. And we always assume, certainly in this building and by way of the internet, there are hearts that do not yet beat for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this will be a word of salvation today. You will give the gift of repentance and faith and you will raise them from death to life. They will answer the question, who is Jesus, the Christ of God? And for those in storm winds that are blowing, give this, give this as a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are just simply tired, weary and heavy laden, make it a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. Give us minds to understand and ears to hear and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Under the heading, life's most important question, four headings, real simple. Number one, what do the crowds say? We'll take a look. Remember, when you're reading the gospel accounts and you're in the scriptures anywhere, you want to get inside the story. What's going on in the story? You want to get inside the minds and the hearts of the people. You want to get an understanding of what God wants us to know. So what, what did the crowd say about this guy, Jesus? And then what does Peter say on behalf of all of the disciples? And I'll show you how we know that. And then finally, number three, what does Jesus say, which is critical? Who did he claim to be? Many unbelieving skeptics, these are bloggers, these are not scholars, but bloggers and chat rumors will say to me, I don't read anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus claimed to be God. And I say, I don't read anywhere where he doesn't claim to be God. Every time he opens his mouth, everything he does and says proclaims loudly for those who have ears to hear. Minds to understand. Remember, this has to be revealed to you by God. We are spiritually dead. And we must be raised from death to life to know these deep spiritual truths. He claims it everywhere. So we'll see what he says and then we'll close with the final question for you. What do you say? Notice that the identity of Jesus is the critical component for all of the evangelists. And they all have their own special way of doing it. Luke, right from the very beginning, we, we hear the announcement of the angels on who this Jesus is. The angel comes and announces to the priest Zechariah in the synagogue, in the temple. He comes and he announces to Mary. In chapter 2, the angelic host announces it to the shepherds. In chapter 3, John the Baptist is questioned, are you the one, the Messiah? He says, no, I baptize you with water, but he baptizes you with fire. I'm not even worthy to unloose the straps of his sandals. Chapter 4, Jesus is identified clearly by Satan himself and the demons. Then the Pharisees begin to ask questions. Who, who is this man who forgives sins? The prerogative only given to God. 
So this question is pressed over and over and over again by Luke. He's bringing us to this point. And then there's something you need to notice. And we'll kind of look at it as a human timeline to make it easy. Last week, we had the question from Herod that was sandwiched right before the feeding of the 5,000. And we unpacked what that feeding was. The feeding wasn't a message of compassion of God, even though God is compassionate. It certainly was not a message of sharing your lunch with a friend. Many, many, many skeptical scholars who deny the miraculous would say this is a message of ethical sharing. Those in the front saw the little boy give the meal to Jesus, and Jesus started to break it up, and they reached into their own bags, and fifteen to 20,000 were fed because everyone shared. Was that the message? No. Because you have to see right here exactly what Luke is doing. You have the question of Herod. I'm, I'm perplexed. Who, who is this man that such things have been said about? Then you have the feeding of the 5,000 plus, And then you have this question from Jesus. But who do you say that I am? It's boxed in for a reason. The most significant flow of thought for Luke right now is to identify who Jesus is. Matthew, there's a number of events that come in between couple chapters long, the same for Mark. In John, there's about 50 verses. Luke skips all of that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke skips all of that. And he goes from Herod's question to the feeding of the 5,000 to the question from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? So this is it. This is, and then we march our way toward the cross. This is the moment. This is the final exam for the disciples. This is the final exam for all of us. Who do you say that I am? This is, this is it. Okay? We're going to launch out into some deep water and let our nets down for a catch together. Number one, what did the crowd say? And then let's try to figure out why. Why did they say what they said? It helps us understand the, the context of what was going on. Luke 9, 19. The response of the crowds is the same response from perplexed Herod that we saw back in verses 7 and 8 and 9. You'll remember that. So the disciples respond to the question, who, who, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others one of the prophets of long ago that's come back to life. Well, why would they say those things? There, there's a couple reasons. We're going to anchor it into Scripture to be sure, but there was also this issue that needed to be dealt with. Perhaps you've heard of the term transmigration of souls, right? You've heard of reincarnation to be sure. Not until the 8th century did this become really a strong teaching in Judaism, this transmigration of soul. The soul would go from one body form, could go from person to animal, it could go from, from person to person, but the transmigration of soul. So know that on the fringes of the commonwealth of Israel, you have all of these pagan borders. So paganism, listen carefully, paganism gets mixed into Judaism at some level, not, not at a scholarly level in, in the temple, but many Israelites believed in the possibility of this transmigration. So they ask such questions as, is this one of the prophets who's returned? The spirit of the prophet has come back. So that's part of it, So you, just so that you can get, but not till the 8th century does that become a real teaching of, of Judaism, and you can look that up. But it's biblical, and there's scripture that's 
informing the Jewish people primarily. Okay? Let's take a look. Deuteronomy 18.15. This is the one here about Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking to the people of God. His final appeal. A prophet like me. But now notice this phrase here. We want to pause for a moment and unpack it. From among you. Well, what does that mean? This is pointing to the humanity of Christ. According to the flesh, Jesus of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. So Moses says that the Lord is going to raise up a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises. So they're waiting for this to take place. Malachi 4, 5. So it gives us a little understanding of why Moses. Okay? Malachi. You remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we see that John the Baptist is going to go forward. I think it's, I think it's Luke 1, 17. John's going to go forward in the spirit of Elijah. So now Malachi, the prophecy here, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Well, they certainly know by way of Scripture that Elijah was whisked off into heaven alive in the chariots of fire. So has he come back? We, we don't know. That They weren't sure. But they, they saw great similarities between Moses and Jesus and between Elijah and, and Jesus and between John and Jesus. And, and, and they just they couldn't come to terms. Let's take a look at the similarities so that we can get inside the minds. Jesus and John the Baptist. Why were they similar? Both preached repentance and both preached the kingdom of God. Identical messages. Both rebuked the religious leaders and both of them had their own group of disciples. So you can see how possibly they're confused. Herod was even confused and he beheaded John. Is this John who's come back from the dead? Cut his head off. But he's perplexed. Jesus and Moses. Both were deliverers. Both were mediators. Both were leaders. Both were lawgivers. Powerful. Remember, we're not even at the spiritual exodus. We haven't gotten to the cross yet. Just at this point in his life, is he similar to Moses? Clearly. And the promise has been made that one like me will come. Is this Moses? Has he come back? And Jesus and Elijah, don't miss this, both multiplied food and raised the dead. This is the key. We just came out of the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. They both multiplied food. You remember that story, but what about raising the dead? The stories are so similar, except for the way Elijah had to get his accomplished, pleading and begging with the Almighty and laying on the child, where Jesus just said, rise, speaking to the dead. But notice, the son of the widow of Nain, Jesus raised with a word, the son of the widow of Zarephath. So there's confusion. And these are good answers. Who here would not be satisfied? Which one of you men would not be satisfied with someone saying, you know, I've been reading the biblical accounts and you really remind me of Elijah. You remind me of John the Baptist. We actually have John here. We, we have John from the Christmas pageant. Don't we have these hiding his head? But see, he was up here. He, he was up here. 
the young Miller lad there. He was up here. JP was here. And he was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. John, wouldn't that be nice for someone to say, you remind me of John? Unless they're just saying because the way you eat the locust and the wild honey and what you wear is camel's hair. I don't know. But to be reminded of Moses. But Jesus says, that's not enough. You haven't taken me high enough. And what do we know about that truth? As much as we might welcome that, know this. Even the best of men are still men at best. Period. That moves us to our second component. What does Peter say? Because clearly that's not the answer. He's not Moses. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He's not just a prophet, a priest, or a king. He's not that. He's much more than that. So even the best of men, the greatest men who have ever lived, are still men at best. So now Jesus says, okay, I've heard what the world says. What do you say? Now, watch this so that we know that everyone is being spoken to. John 9, 20. But what about you, he asked. Who do you, that you right there, second person, plural, all the disciples are being asked. It's emphatic. He said, be like me saying, who do you, all of you, say that Jesus is? That's what he's doing. He's not just Peter's the spokesman. Remember, Peter's always speaking up anyway. Often he's foot and mouth disease. He speaks when he shouldn't. Sometimes he's silent when he should speak. But he's the spokesman. And he speaks up on behalf of the, the group, the 12. Okay? Who do you say, all of you, who, who do you say they huddle? He's not just a prophet. He's not, he's not Moses. He's... Okay, are we in agreement? Yes, we're in agreement. Peter answered, the Christ of God. What does that mean? Take a look in the Greek. Two things you need to see, and then we're going to go to Matthew real quick. Got to see what this means. Listen, a lot of people are mistaken in thinking when we call Jesus Christ, it's like calling you by first and last name. Christ is not a surname. It's a title. It's an office. It's a divine declaration of who he is. It's not his name, Jesus Christ. Christ, Christos, is the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Now go to Matthew because we want to put the gospel accounts together and Matthew writes it a little differently. No contradiction, just a little differently. He lays it out. We put them both together. Watch here. 1616, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Well, is that different than the Christ? Well, let's see. The son of the living God. He even adds a wonderful phrase at the end. Probably the one we all remember. I don't know many who quote Luke's gospel account, Christ of God. But I certainly feel comfortable with the Matthew one. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What does Messiah mean? In the Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah, is the anointed one. It's the Christ. They are interchangeable. So this is the promised Messiah who is to come. Here's what Dr. Sproul said. Check these words out. The church stands strong and unconquerable as long as it remains committed to its confession that Jesus is the Christ. If you have Jesus as a great teacher and a good man and a wonderful prophet and that's it, you are still dead in your sins. You are lost. That, because you have, you have to remember that's, that's, that's not what he claimed to be. It is clear what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be and what he claimed 
to come here to do. And that's what we have to address. We can't, we can't, we can't force him into something we're comfortable receiving him as. And we can take this message of the feeding of the 5,000. What a wonderful ethical teaching. And teach that to our children that when they go to school, share your lunch. Share with others. It's a wonderful message we should share. But that wasn't the teaching that he was teaching that day on that hillside when he was feeding those people. So now we're going to take a look at this anointing thing so that we can see how it all fits together. Note this. This is the first time he's called Messiah. In, in the Gospel of Luke. This is it. There's a turning point now in the ministry of Christ. We're on the way to the cross. The final exam has been taken and they pass. Now, to the extent of understanding what it really meant to be Messiah, to be Christ, they didn't fully grasp that, and you know that because they ran and hid when he went to the cross. They weren't reading Isaiah 53 appropriately. They were looking for the conquering king who would come and set up the throne in Jerusalem and reestablish David's throne. They were looking for someone to remove the boot of Rome from their necks. That's what they wanted. They wanted a military king. Right? They wanted a leader who would lead Israel back to prominence. They misunderstood the suffering servant that had to come first. They missed all of that. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to read that. Why? They felt that their greatest enemy was Rome. It wasn't their greatest enemy. Their greatest enemy and ours as well. It's not the government. It's sin, Satan, and death. That must be dealt with. It must be paid for. And he's the only one who could pay the penalty for it. Satisfy the wrath of God. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. So now take a look at how this fits, okay? Exodus 40, 12 to 13. Bring Aaron and his sons to the tent of meeting and wash with water. Dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Now anoint him. Okay. Anoint him and consecrate him that we, so that he may serve me as priest. So we see in the Old Testament this anointing that takes place. For this office of priest, remember the primary offices, prophet, priest, and king. Does Jesus fulfill that? That's the question. Because you have all of those years, you have 1,500 years in, in, in the Old Testament that's pointing us to the New Testament of all of these offices of prophet, priest, and king that are being fulfilled over and over and over again. What does it point to? It all has to point to something. It's got to come together somewhere. So here we see the anointing here of Aaron. The first high priest, the great high priest in the commonwealth of Israel is anointed. Remember, it's a special oil. The Old Testament tells you, I didn't put it up on the screen for you, a special oil to use for anointing. Now go to 1 Samuel. So we see the priests are anointed. 1 Samuel, we're going to see a king now. Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head. The first king of Israel was Saul. Kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler and king over his inheritance? So we see the priest and we see the king anointed, set apart. What did we do this morning? What did, what, what did we do with our little baby? Jackson is set apart. That's, that's, that's similar to an anointing, the water. There was nothing special in the oil. It, it was a sign and a symbol of the promise of God that God would use this prophet and this priest and this king for his glory to expand the cause of his kingdom. In his unfolding plan of redemption, this is how God chose to work, through broken, fallible people. So Jackson is set apart this morning to be used by God for the glory of God to expand God's kingdom. And that's a sign and a symbol of doing that. So this, this is powerful. Signs and symbols are powerful. They're designed to teach us something. So we see it all throughout the Old Testament. So we have the priest. We have the king. 
Oh, and we have to get to the prophet, shall we? The Lord said to Elijah, anoint Hazael, king. It's another king over Aram. And Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Now, Elijah the prophet's going to anoint Elisha the prophet with the oil. Prophet, priest, and king. Take a look. The prophet who reveals God's will to God's people. That's the Christ. The priest who sacrifices himself for the sins of God's people. No priest could do that in the Old Testament. They made sacrifice not just for the people of God, but for themselves. The high priest on the day... Yom Kippur, the one day of the year of of atonement, he had to make sacrifice for himself, and then he would make sacrifice for the people of God. Why? He was a sinner just like them. Nothing special about him being the high priest. He had just been chosen by God. Why? Because God's favor rested upon him. It wasn't because he was any better than anyone. He was a sinner in need of a Savior. But now the true priest has come. He makes no sacrifice for himself. Why? There's no reason for a sacrifice. He's perfect in every way. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And then finally, the king who is Lord over all creation. But now I want to show you the difference. It's one thing to anoint a man. Because remember, even the best of men are still men at best. So we anoint the prophets. We anoint the priests. We anoint the kings. We anoint them with oil. It's a wonderful, symbolic ceremony of being set apart for God. But this is no ordinary prophet, priest, and king. How is he anointed? Don't miss this. Psalm 45 and Isaiah 61 are going to fit together like bookends. Watch. Your throne, O God, will last forever. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, your God has set you above. Set you above. Your companions, every other prophet, every other priest, every other king, by anointing you with the oil of joy. I put in parentheses gladness. You heard of the oil of gladness, the oil of joy? What kind of oil might that be? Where do you buy that? You don't buy that one. You don't mix that one up in the back portion of the temple courtyard. Check out Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The oil of joy is the unction of the Holy Spirit having been poured out from on high. At his baptism, what do we hear? The heavens open up and the voice of God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Spirit of God comes down from heaven and lights upon his shoulder. What's the oil of joy and the oil of gladness? Well, it's spelled out beautifully for us in Acts 10.38. Ready? 10.38. In case we missed something between the psalm and Isaiah. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with what? The Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. So there it is. What does Peter and the apostles say? They confirm this is the Christ, the promised anointed one, and this is the one who was anointed unlike any of his companions before. He is anointed by God the Father, 
anointing him with the third person, the third person of the Trinity. He anoints the second person of the Trinity with the third. The Holy Spirit now comes upon him. And remember what we've said. He was filled with the Spirit. He operated not in his own power. He set aside the prerogative of the second person of the Trinity. He operated as a man in the power of God, which is what should give you great comfort. Because the same power that was in Jesus is the same power that's in you. It's the same Spirit. So, what does Jesus say? I just give you two little sections. It's real simple, and then we hit the final question, we're done. Look at his words and look at his works. Everything he did made it clear. So look at his words. We'll, we'll be brief here. The Pharisee's home he's at, he's teaching, and a man is lowered on a mat through roof tiles. Check this out. Luke 5, 20 to 21. We preached it already. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your, your sins are forgiven. Pause for a moment. Can you imagine the work that his friends went through? This guy's laying on a mat. He can't move. They tried to go through the front door. They couldn't get in. They tried to go through the back door. Tried to get him through a window. Couldn't get him in the house. House was packed. And there were people all over. They get up to the roof. Now they're digging through the tiles in the roof. Now two things to imagine. All of the work to, to dig through that. But then imagine the Pharisees sitting on. So imagine you're sitting there right now. And all of a sudden stuff starts falling on your head. And you're looking up. And you're seeing the, the wood plank starting to move a little bit. And, and dust and dirt and stuff. So the Pharisees with their shawls and all of their, their self-righteousness sitting there. And this stuff's falling all over their heads. They're going like, I can't believe it. And the hole's getting bigger and bigger. Now, unless they dropped them straight down, just enough to go head first or feet first, I don't know how. I'm thinking they just opened up this huge, massive opening. They, they just they tore the roof off. And they lower them down. But it gets really bizarre. Really bizarre. And you have to see it. You have to see why it's bizarre. This guy's on a mat. He can't walk. Couldn't get in. Friends tore the roof apart in order to get in. Came to a Pharisee's house where they were not welcomed. The sick, the injured were not welcomed in the Pharisee's house. They were under the curse of God. If you were paralyzed, you were cursed of God. You you have no business being here. So notice what. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine them all looking at each other? The guys who are still on the roof and lowered them down. They've got their heads now through the hole. What? What? And the guy on the mat looking around going, what did you miss? I can't move. But this, this, this was the point. The Pharisees began thinking to themselves, who is this who speaks blasphemy? For only God alone can forgive sins. So here again he claims to be God. And then, of course, what does he say? Here's the beautiful part about the passage. But, but you can't think with your, with your natural mind. You, you really can't. Because when I ask the question, which is easier? He says it. Which is easier? For me to say that your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. Now, the natural mind, you're, you're going to say it. So you have to be careful. You're going to say, well, certainly it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Much harder to get up and walk because you're going to have to prove something. But what's the deepest, deepest theological truth in what Jesus really asked? Which was easier for Jesus? To say, get up and walk. That was nothing compared to what he was going to have to pay for the right to have you. So which was easier? Take your mat and go home. But I'm going to a cross to pay for your sins. And I assure you, that's far more difficult than what I just did here. Know who's here today. I am the Christ the Son of the living God, the promised Messiah, the Ancient of Days. I am the only way to the Father. I ask you today, who 
do you say I am? That's the question. Works, take a look at this. In fear and amazement, Luke, we preached this already. They asked one another, who is this? This is the constant question. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Do you ever think about the practical application of that? Now I have to go to meddling for just a moment. But the practical application is that even winds and water are more obedient than we are. You ever think of that? Right? Doesn't that sting? Right? Even the winds and the waves, he goes, shh. And there wasn't a zephyr in the air. Obedient. Why? He's the creator. And the creator has become our redeemer. Oh, my goodness. So we could go on and on, but that's just enough. We have words and we have works. We have, we have words and we have works. We have words and works that proclaim to the world who Jesus is. They said, this man teaches like no one we've ever heard. Like one who, this authority, we've, we've never heard this. We hear from the greatest teachers that Israel has ever known who have been in the schools, the rabbinic schools their entire lives. No one teaches with this kind of authority. There was something in his message. There was something in him. There was something about him. They knew that, but they couldn't get all the way. He was still a great man. And it's no different today. So now, just to close on this one, and then we we hit our final question. I've shown you, we go to John 10. Jesus asked, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Notice how he paints them in a corner. For which of these do you stone me? They're always getting ready to stone this guy, right? Remember, they didn't hold the power of the sword. Rome did. They didn't hold the power, but they were going to stone him anyway. Bury him under a pile of rocks. Nobody would know any better. So he says, for which one of these good works are you going to stone me? (laughs) We're not stoning you for any good work. The works are pretty cool. We can't do them. Never seen anything like it. But I'll tell you what. But for blasphemy, because you a mere man... No different than Moses, no different than Elijah, no different than John the Baptist. You a mere man, you claim to be God. How do we close? How about a few quotes from some brilliant minds just to get us to the final question? Remember the War of the Worlds? Some of you are old enough to remember the War of the Worlds. H.G. Wells, listen to his answer to the question. Who do you say, H.G.? Who who do you say? I am a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. For H.G. Wells, he was a great, great man. Augustine of Hippo, the great confessions, the city of God, the city of man. Some of you are familiar with that. Listen to these words carefully. I have read in Plato and Cicero's sayings that are very wise and very beautiful. But I never read in either of them. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who says that? Oh, Albert Einstein, Saturday Evening Post, 1929. 
As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. But he was a Jew and saw Jesus as a great man. Clive Staple Lewis. You know him as C.S. Let him frame out our final question. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Peter later says what? God has made him both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ, the Savior of the world, God has made him. So the question before the house is this. Who do you say Jesus is? You must make your choice. And right now is a moment of salvation. If you have never surrendered control to Christ... Augustine of Hippo said, who would say such a thing as come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest? Who would say such a thing? Only God. So with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Jesus says to you right now in this moment of invitation, come, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I alone will give you rest. You can't come to God with your good works, your church attendance, tithing of your money and of your time and of your talent. You can't come to him that way. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Either that's true or it's not. It, 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 all of the stuff that's out there can't all be true. Either he is the Messiah, God's Christ, or he's not. He didn't put himself out to be a great ethical teacher so you could have moralistic messages to tell your little children at night. He didn't put that out there for you. He didn't want to be a great prophet or priest or king. He is the Messiah, the Christ of God. He is the Savior of the world. Is he yours? He is if you bow your heart to Christ. It's real simple. Cry out to Jesus. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Trust in Christ alone. We're going to pray. If you prayed for the very first time this morning when we pray, come see me after. And if you're still not sure, come see me after. Don't leave this place without knowing that Christ is Jesus.
And today is a moment of salvation, and tomorrow it may be too late. Let's pray. Father, right now we pray together, every believer in this room, we always assume some here today and by way of the internet who have never surrendered control to Christ. Father, we ask that you give the gift of repentance and faith. You draw them by the power of the Holy Spirit unto yourself. They feel such a strong urging that right now, Father, they pray these words with me and all of the saints of God. Oh God, I've heard the truth today. I understand the truths of the gospel and I surrender control of my life to Christ. I know that I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. I trust in this Christ alone. I repent of my sin and I turn my heart toward you. Salvation now is yours, beloved, and know this truth that nothing will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the promise of the gospel. And now for all of you who have been walking with Jesus, some for decades, keep on walking by grace, through faith, by faith and not by sight, knowing that he who began a good work a long time ago in your heart is bringing it to completion even now. And this we ask you for, and this we thank you for, in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Do you all stand as we continue our worship? Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope and no place to begin Oh, you're great. 
rejoiced as though heaven had lost. What did Jesus arose with our freedom in hell? That's when death was arrested and my life began. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace, so free, washes over me. You have made me new, now life begins with you. It's your Yes, and we're free, free forever and ever. When death was arrested in my life again, when death was arrested in my life again, that's when death was arrested in my life began. two parts to that freedom don't miss the second be sure you have the first first we're freed from the penalty of sin we're freed from the control of Satan we're freed from death because of what Christ has done Christ paid the penalty for us but we're not only freed from that, we're now freed to something. To live a life that's pleasing. A life that is glorifying to God. Imperfectly. We will all live it imperfectly. We mess it up all the time. But how powerful is it to know that even when we mess it up, we have a God who forgives us. Over and over and over again. We're free. Jesus said, because I live, you shall also live. 
regardless of what you're facing, and I know some of you are in very difficult storm winds that are blowing. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trust. With God, all things are possible. Receive the benediction of our God. And now to him, to the Christ of God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask, imagine, or even begin to hope for according to the power that is at work within us. The Lord Jesus Christ, to him be honor, glory, majesty, and dominion now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Go.